this morning, go ahead and turn to the table of contents. And then turn to the book of Hosea. To the book of Hosea. You're probably, as we go through the minor prophets, your Bible may not just fall open to them. You probably haven't read as much from them. You probably haven't heard as many sermons from them. So don't be embarrassed. So we're going to be in Hosea chapter We're actually going to cover chapters 1 through 3 today. They're the main idea of the book. If you get the first three chapters, you really get the whole book. But I'm not going to make you endure hearing me read the first three chapters. We're going to read starting in chapter 2, verse 14. And we'll read to chapter 3, verse 2. So, if you're there, Hosea chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, God's word says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my bell. For I will remove the names of the bells from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, and the creeping things of the earth, of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. And I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Oh, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine and the oil and they will, shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land and I will have mercy on no mercy and I will say to not my people, you are my people and he shall say, you are my God. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I brought her, bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lectic of barley. Let's pray to the Lord together. Heavenly Father, How unfaithful we are to you. Not for five seconds in our whole lives do we love you with everything that you deserve from us. And yet, Father, you love us nonetheless. And so, Father, this morning I pray that you would open our eyes to the egregiousness and offensiveness of our sin. And that you would open our hearts to your mercy, your kindness, and your faithfulness. Oh, Lord, would you say exactly what you have to say to us, your people, to open our eyes, to win our hearts, to draw us into sweet fellowship with you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So over the next 12 weeks, we are going to be in a series through the Minor Prophets. There are 12 Minor Prophet books. We've actually already covered one of them at length in the book of Jonah. And so this, in the big story, we're going to handle a little bit differently than we've handled some of the other books. We've been traditionally going kind of chronologically through the books of the Bible. We're not going to do that with the Minor Prophets just because I think it would just be really confusing. And at times they can be confusing on their own accord. So we're not going to add to that confusion any. Um, And so we're going to start with the first in the order uh, that is there in the canon, and that is with the book of 
Hosea. Now, the minor prophets, they had a difficult me- a message for Israel. They had a message of very serious and severe judgment. The, the, old, uh, the old Puritans called it a severe mercy for the Israelites. That they were talking about the situation and the unfaithfulness that was there and present in Israel. And the judgment and discipline that God was going to allow Israel to experience as a result. But I've called this series Now and Later because there are two dimensions really to the message of the minor prophets. They had the situation that they were dealing with in the now, in the presence, the, the, the sin of Israel, the unfaithfulness of, of Israel, the wavering of Israel, and the judgment that was going to come now as a result, the severe discipline of God that was going to come against them. But they were always in the backdrop, there was always there in the backdrop, always there breaking through the darkness of the judgment was the light of mercy. The later, a restoration, a redemption, a renewal that was to come. And so in the, un, to understand the message of the minor prophets, you have to understand that they're preaching and speaking with this now and later concept. That there is something that we must deal with in the now. We must face our sin and repent of our sin and experience God's discipline. But, but, but it is always in light of the mercy that is to come. It is always in light of the redemption and the renewal that is to come later at the kind hand of God. In fact, this is an especially relevant series, I think, for us. You see, we we live in a day, we live in an age of self-esteem, life coach Christianity. And we can come to the Bible and we can open the Bible and say, okay, God, how can I have more peace? Okay, God, how can I have greater wealth? Okay, God, how can I have greater success in my life? Well, coming to the minor prophets They require us to have a more full-orbed view and understanding of the character of God and of the nature of the gospel. That the gospel and the focus of God is not upon us. It's not even upon our daily success. And it's not upon all the things that we want to achieve and attain in this life. That the minor prophets force us to stop looking at us so much. And instead look and behold the greatness and the grandeur and the majesty and the ferocity of our God. In fact, it's the very message that Jesus himself, it's very similar to the message that Jesus himself tells as we open up there in the Revelation. Jesus is speaking as the great prophet. He is the fulfillment of all of the prophets. And he says there to the church in Ephesus, he says, this I have against you. Now, he's just named off some things he's, he's happy with, some, some religious happenings in the church of Ephesus that are impressive, some things that are, that are virtuous about their character and that could be spoken well of them. But he says, in light of all of your religious activity, in light of all of your dutiful obedience, in light of all your, of your careful adherence to the true faith, this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. This is the message of the minor prophets. That the people of God had abandoned the love that they had for God. They had abandoned their devotion to God. And how does, what does Jesus say? If you won't repent, if you won't turn away, if you won't just go, keep going through cold-hearted religion, if you won't just go, be going through mindless devotions and mindless duty, then I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place. And I I, I share this because what I want you to understand is that as he's talking to Israel, we are the branches, Romans chapter 9, that have been 
grafted into Israel. This is relevant to us today. These are the words of Christ to his church. And they are searching words, brothers and sisters. They are searching words. That we can compare ourselves with other churches and we might feel good about ourselves. We can compare ourselves with our neighbors and we might feel good about ourselves. We might be rife with religious activity and ritual obedience. And Jesus might still say to us, you have abandoned your love for me. You have abandoned your love for me. And I am going to remove you if you do not turn back. I am going to let your church die. I am going to let your witness extinguish if you do not turn to me. Brothers and sisters, this is the message of the minor prophets. This is the message of the minor prophets. And it is especially the message of the minor prophet Hosea. Now remember that at this time, Israel, we've, if you've been with us in the big story, you know by now, Israel is in two kingdoms. The people of God are in two kingdoms. The northern kingdom, which is called Israel, or at times referred to as Ephraim. And then the southern kingdom, which is referred to as Judah. Now things are going to go worse for the northern kingdom before they go bad for the southern kingdom, but it's going to go bad for both. And that's relevant because you need to understand as we go through the prophets that some of the prophets are talking to the northern kingdom, some of the prophets are talking to the southern kingdom. Hosea is one of the few prophets to the northern kingdom, and he has a ministry that spans about five decades of proclaiming God's word. And the message that Hosea has for the people of God is a particularly telling and particularly shocking and particularly urgent message and I believe that it's a particularly relevant one for us. And what we're going to see in Hosea is we're, I hope that we're going to see the gospel. That we're going to see the gospel, the New Testament, Christ-purchased gospel from the book of Hosea. So the first thing I want you to see from Hosea is that God's bride is prone to wonder. God's bride is prone to wonder. You know, if, if Hosea would have went and he would have taken a poll of all Israel... And he would have asked Israel, do you love God? It would have come back and it would have been unanimous. 100% we love God. If Jesus would have went and he would have taken a poll at the church at Ephesus. And he would have asked the church of Ephesus, do you love me with all of your heart and with all of your mind and with all of your strength? It would have been unanimous. The church in Ephesus would have been certain that they loved Christ. Why do you think we're guarding our doctrine? Why do you think we're coming and showing up here every week? It's because we love you. And if I was to do a similar poll here among us this morning, and I was to go person to person, and I was to ask you, do you love Christ? Do you love Christ? Do you love Christ? My expectation is that it would be unanimous. That among us, that we would gather and we would say, that's why I woke up early. That's why I drug my kids here. That's why I got dressed. That's why I'm here to hear you talk to me for however long. That, that's why I'm here. I love Christ. The point of the book of Hosea is that very often the people of God are abandoning God all while believing that they are loving God. That they are in the process of abandoning him and forsaking him all while believing that they're right with him. And we have to stop for just a second and say, could that be us? Could that be us? Could that be me? Could I, could I be deceiving myself into believing that I am right with God and that I love God all while forsaking and abandoning God? That is at the center of the book of Hosea is what is it that is true love? What is it that is true love? What does it mean to truly love God and what does it mean for God to truly love me? I think this is at the center. 
And what I want you to see first is that true love won't leave. True love won't leave. So Hosea, I mentioned earlier, it is a very shocking book. It is meant to, when you read Hosea, as I know some of you did this week, you're supposed to stop for a second and say, what in the world is happening up in here? So God goes to his prophet Hosea and he asks him to do something that is unthinkable. As a matter of fact, some commentators even believe that it is immoral. And they try to sanitize and reinterpret the book of Hosea to not say, in my opinion, what it says. Because it seems so out of alignment with what you would expect from God. God goes to his prophet Hosea and he says, Hosea, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and find the most unfaithful woman that you can. I want you to go and find a woman of a wife of whoredom, is what it says in the ESV. I want you to go and find a harlot. I want you to find an adulteress. I want you to find a prostitute. And I want you to marry her. And I want you to give her all of your heart. And I want you to devote yourself to her. And I want you to be a faithful husband to her. And I want you to commit to her. And I want you to bail her out time and again. And I want you to always have a place for her to return. I want you to be a good husband to a bad wife. And the point is clear. That this is the relationship between God and his people. That God is a faithful husband. But his bride, she's throwing herself at every single God that happens by. She's making herself available to any whim of any man, of any abuser. Just hoping to catch his eye. The point is, she's wondering. She's prone to wonder. She's like us. We're prone to wonder. We're prone to say that we're committed to God while at the same time throwing ourselves at everything that the world presents to us. Throwing ourselves to all the riches. Throwing ourselves to all the priorities. Throwing ourselves to all the values. Throwing ourselves and our children and our families head in, head over hills for the American dream all while forsaking this God that we have committed ourselves to. And we have to ask ourselves, well, how did she end up there? How do we end up there? I think there's a clue there in verse 2. This is when the Lord first spoke through Hosea. The Lord said to Hosea, go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Now, the word forsaking is not a direct translation. We, we talk about this sometimes. It's not a great translation into the English because there's not one. But if we were able to, re to read this in the original Hebrew, what we would recognize is that this word forsaking carries, carries with it the force of something that is an accumulation. Something that's cumulative over time. In other words, they have not instantly, decisively forsaken God. They didn't decide one day, today is the day I'm going to abandon God. Today is the day that I'm not going to love God. Today is the day that I'm going to bring shame to the name of God. Rather, it was something that happened Gradually, It was a gradual forsaking, erosive almost in nature, almost undetectable by the human eye. And what we can identify with Israel and the way that they ended up in a place, which I feel certain is the same way Ephesus ends up where they are, is we can identify a pattern that is often common within our lives. That the pattern toward losing your first love begins with having a new normal. Begins with having a new normal. So here's Israel. They're coming out of Egypt and they're walking. And they obviously have an issue there in Sinai. But as they press on, there's no question who it is that is giving them the manna each day. There's no question in who's providing them water to drink. They know that all of their provision and all of their protection and all of their deliverance has come by the hand of Yahweh. But then they come into the land of Canaan. 
And coming into the land of Canaan, they see wealth that they've never witnessed before. Prosperity that is seemingly endless. They see giant grapes. It's a land that is flowing with milk and honey. And there in Canaan, they worship a god by the name of Baal. And Baal is supposedly the reason that they're so prosperous. And so there, they come into the land of Canaan. They think, well, this is nice. I would like some of this. I wouldn't mind having a bit of this. And their normal begins to shift. Before, they would, would not tolerate another God. Now, they're open-minded to one. Now, they're considering one. They're, they're, what, what is understood by them to be typical, expected, begins to shift as they're infiltrated and, and, and surrounded by a new culture that they had refused to fully eradicate. All right, so it starts with a new normal. And then a new normal leads to a new morality that I begin to redefine in alignment with my new normal. And I may get this new normal all of a sudden by watching movies, by going places, spending time with people, listening to certain types of music, all these kinds of things. And, and you guys know I'm not some legalist that says you got to just withdraw from the world. I don't think the Bible teaches that. But by surrounding yourself and immersing yourself in the world, all of a sudden what feels normal to you begins to shift. And what, when, what normal to you begins to shift like it was for the Israelites going into Canaan, all of a sudden now I have to have a new morality that can accommodate this new sense of normal that I have to have. That what used to be wrong now seems okay. And what used to seem right may even now seem unreasonable. It may, be, it may seem like I'm, I'm being too strict. It may seem like I'm being too, too fundamental. It may seem like I'm, I'm holding too hard of a line. And so you have this pattern. So, so it starts with a new normal. It moves to a new morality. And gradually, slowly, there's this forsaking that ultimately it culminates with an entirely new religion. You have someone and they have a new normal and they have new opinions and new thoughts and new priorities and new values. And what's the first thing they want to do? They want to be able to go to the Bible and make sure that their new values are okay. They want to be able to go back and retrofit the scriptures, retrofit the teachings of God, retrofit the word of God. So that now it can align and it can, it can accommodate the new opinions that they hold, the new values that they hold, the new morality that they hold. Well, what they have is a religion that is a figment of their own imagination. And they're not bowing down to Christ. They're not bowing down before the God that loves them and has saved them and has delivered them. They're bowing down to themselves. Because they've created a religion that can accommodate every view they want to have. And every opinion they want to hold. And everything they want to do. And every place they want to go. And, and every, every goal and aspiration that they want to have. And so what you see in Israel is it begins with there shall be no other gods and it comes to toleration and it ends ultimately in exaltation, them worshiping the other gods that they once repudiated. But this is how adultery always happens, brothers and sisters. I've never had someone come into my office and say, suddenly I saw her and we had an affair. No, it, it begins with a thought. It begins with a glance. It begins, then it moves to a conversation, and a conversation moves to flirting, and flirting moves to emotional attachment, and emotional attachment ultimately culminates in physical consummation. This is the same way that we betray the Lord. This is the same way that we forsake the Lord. Not suddenly, gradually. Not decisively, erosively. Over a period of years. And you know something else about adultery that we see here that is true of Hosea's age is that it's always a fantasy that you're having an affair with. You're never having an affair with a real person. You recognize that. 
Of course, there may be a human being there. There may not be. There may just be a screen. There may just be an idea. There may just be a movie. There may be just a picture. There may just be a whatever. But, but there may be a living, breathing human being. But even that living, breathing human being is not who you believe them to be. You have created a whole fantasy around that person. They don't leave their clothes on the floor. And they'll treat me with respect. And they won't speak negatively. And we'll never have conflict. And it'll always be positive. That's what harlotry is, y'all. Harlotry is nothing more and nothing less than seeking temporary pleasure from a fantasy person. That's where Israel is. Look there, in ver- I have chapter 2, verse 5 there uh, on the screen. This is one of the, one of the many uh, judgments that's read against Israel. And it says, for their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me, this is the credit that she's given, who give me my bread, my water, my wool, my flax, my oil, and my drink. Well, who gave them these things? Who had provided for Israel? Literally, raining bread from heaven. Literally, pouring water out of a rock. Who has provided and protected time and again Israel? It has been Yahweh. It has been the faithful husband. And yet here is Israel saying, no, it's, it's, it's my lover over in the corner. No, it's the fantasy, Baal. And what Hosea is there to show them is to shock them out of their system and saying, no, you are giving the credit of a faithful husband to an abusive lover, to a fantasy, to a mirage, to someone who doesn't love you, doesn't care about you, won't answer you, and won't help you. They, had, they were making alliances with, with Assyria as though Assyria, their enemies, were going to protect them. And so the reason that you commit adultery, you see, the reason that, that Israel was given over to spiritual har- harlotry and the reason that we're given over to spiritual prostitution is we say that God's not enough for us. God's not satisfying enough. God's not providing enough. God's not protecting enough. I wonder if you even feel the weight of that as I'm saying it. God's not being good enough. My husband is not good enough. I need more. You see, if we were to translate Baal into 21st century postmodern English, we would translate it as self. Self. I want more. I'm looking for more. I want to make more. I want to have more. I want to experience more. I want to know more. I need more. And it is not love to look at your husband who is faithful, who is providing, who is protecting, and to tell him, I need you and I need a lot of other people like you. See, it's not love to leave. But there's something else that we need to see love. We need to see not true love, not just from the perspective of what Israel is doing, but the perspective of what God is doing. That true love won't leave and true love can't ignore. And I think this is really, really important as we come into the Minor Prophets. And I want this to kind of frame up the whole series. Is that sometimes what we even hear in, in, in what I believe to be a gospel-centered church with gospel-centered preaching, that there can be a, an inherent spiritual danger in which we flatten the character of God. Here, here, here's what I mean by that. That we can move so quickly from our sinfulness to God's mercy that we bypass the egregiousness of our sinfulness. That we bypass the offensiveness 
forgiveness to God of our sin. That we bypass the consequences of our sin. That we bypass how severe and dire our sinfulness is. That we can move immediately from my sin to God's mercy. So that in some way all of the, the hardship, all of the offense of the cross. All of, of the, the pain endured by Christ and the price that has been paid. All of the horizontal relational fallout that can happen as a result of our sinfulness is somehow bypassed because we say, hey, y'all all should just be fine with me because God is fine with me. Are you not a Christian? Well, this is a flattening of the character of God to recognize that within the gospel holds the ability to be disciplined by God, to experience the severe mercy of God, to experience consequences even at the hands of God. To see this, you see this vividly in the book of Hosea. There, there are three children. Listen to this. And tell me if this isn't a shock to your system. So he went and he took Gomer. This is the, the wife of Hordom, the daughter of Deblame. And she conceived and bore him. Okay, so the first son, it's important to note, is born to him. Hosea. Okay. And the Lord said to call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Okay, so he has the first son. First son's come. Everybody's always excited to have their first son. Well, Hosea has a unique family, as we've already seen, right? And so God says, you're going to name your son Jezreel. Now, what's the significance of that? Je- Jezreel uh, was a place which Jehu had just went and he had executed. He had, he had eliminated all of the, the house of Ahab for bowing down and worshiping Baal. But Gideon had led a massacre there. Over and over and over in the valley of Jezreel in Israel's history, it is a place of bloodshed. It is a place of massacre. It is a place where God stands before his people and against his enemies and overcomes his enemies for the sake and the good and the protection of his people. But remember, his people, they believe that Baal is the one providing these things. They, they, they believe that, that the Assyrians, that in an alliance with God's enemies, that God's enemies are actually going to protect them from God's enemies. Do you hear the insanity of that? So here's what God says. Name the first boy Jezreel. Because in that place where I usually overcome my enemies, my people have become my enemy. And now I will not fight for them, I will come against them. They believe that the Assyrians will protect them. Let the Assyrians protect them as I break their bow. Let the Assyrians protect them as they stand in the gap. Let the Assyrians defend them as my angels don't defend them and stand before them but come against them in judgment. That now they will be treated as God's people the enemies of God. Verse 6, it gets worse, okay? And I want you to hear there's going to be three different children, and with each of the children there is an increasing severity to the judgment that is coming. She conceived again, this is Gomer, and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, call her name no mercy, for I will have no more, I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel. This name can literally be no, uh, not loved. Imagine. Naming this little girl not loved. Then there, and, and it's important to note here that now she bore him a daughter, but it's not Hosea. It does not say he bore him a daughter, bore a daughter. This is a, a daughter of whoredom. This is a, a daughter that is illegitimate. Verse 7. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. And when she had weaned, no mercy... She bore and now conceived a third child, a second son. 
And the Lord said, I call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. This is the most damning and devastating uh, uh, yet. This literally can be translated, I am not. You remember the name that uh, when Moses is going to go and stand before Pharaoh, he says, who shall I say shall sit, sent me? And what does God say? Tell them I am sent you. It is the, the personal name between God and his people. This can literally be treated, I am not, I am capitalized to you. In other words, I was your God, but now I am not your God. You live by my mercy and by my love, but now you will experience my withdrawal. You were always defended as my people, and I was your great ally. I was your great deliverer. I was your great protector. But now you are my enemy, and you will be received as such. These are hard words, aren't they? You see, we come into a framework very often with God, and we think, how could God ever punish sin of good people? We come into a framework with God, and we think, because God is love, and because God loves me, he must, he is required to overlook all of my foibles and all of my sins, and to make light and minimize all of the great offensiveness I have brought against me. What Hosea is meant to tell us is that a faithful husband will not abide, will not abide an open marriage. A loving father, he will not ignore his children as his children are self-destructing. That a faithful husband will intervene when his wife is running to other men. That a a good father will intervene when his children are self-destructing. That they will bring in even consequences into their lives to be able to open up their eyes so that they will know. So that they will know that they are on a path that will ultimately lead to their total destruction. That what we see here with Israel, what we hear, I believe, in Revelation chapter 2 as Jesus is talking to the church of Ephesus that has forsaken their first love is that God will allow us as we forsake him to experience the sting of what it feels like to be forsaken by him. That God will withdraw from us, not our salvation if we're his children, but God will withdraw from us an intimacy with him that leads to a peace that surpasses understanding. That God will withdraw from us the protection and the provision of all of the supernatural ways that God intervenes into our life. That God will allow us to reap some of that which we have sown so that we can know that our way in our arrogance is not the right way. Because we have to be humbled by God. Right now, if you're looking at if you're in high school and you're looking forward and you're trying to figure out how to fit in, you need to feel the weight of this. You're in college and you just want to have what everybody else has, and you 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 just want to be liked, and you just want to have some experiences, and you just want to be able to rebel for a while with the thoughts. You need to listen to this. Some of you right now on the edge, you're you're private messaging people that you know you shouldn't be private messaging. You're you're talking with men or women that are not your husband, not your wife. You're living in a a secret addiction to pornography and you think it doesn't matter. You need to listen to this. Yes, yes, God's mercy is rich. Yes, God's love is good. And sometimes his mercy is severe and sometimes his love is hard because he cares for you. And he will not let you self-destruct all while believing that things are rosy with him. No, he will call you back. 
Because love cannot ignore self-destruction. God's bride is prone to wonder. And God's love will pay the price. God's love will pay the price. You can imagine, you have these three children. And the names of these three children, they're really the main ideas of the book. That you can take the Jezreel, uh, No Mercy, and Not My People, and really the 14 chapters is an exposition of those three names. But you can imagine, as, as, as it would right here in Heflin or in White Plains, gossip is going to spread about these names. How could he name his little girl not loved? How could he name his little girl no mercy? How could he name one of his own heirs, one of his own boys, one of his own sons, not my people? You see, by naming them then, by, by giving them those names, Hosea was saying from birth, these are bastard children, illegitimate children. Not cared for children. Children without a father. And as the town, as the word spread of Hosea the prophet and his relationship with Gomer, the names of his children, over and again they were saying, how could he? How could he? And the point was, just like when Nathan came to David, and David had committed the sin of Bathsheba, and he had murdered her husband Uriah, and Nathan comes and he confronts and he tells him the story about the ewe lamb, right? And the ewe lamb that is, was taken from the, from the poor peasant and executed, and the peasant had loved him. And, and David said, how could anybody do that? How could he do that? Bring him. And Nathan looks at David and says, you are the man. That's Hosea's message. You are the daughter, no mercy. You are the son, not my people. That brings us to the question, how could he? How could God disinherit his people? How could God allow his people to know his anger in the way that one of his enemies could? How could he? And here's what I want you to see is that it is driven by love. That's what we have to understand from the book of Hosea. Again, teaching us the three-dimensional, well-rounded character of God and the well-rounded nature of what true love is. It is driven by love. That why did he do it? He did it because he will open our eyes. God will open our eyes. So we've talked about this. God will allow you to reap what you have sown. God will allow you to, to feel some of the weight of forsakenness, even as his children. That God will allow you to experience a, a withdrawal of the nearness and intimacy that, that has been given to you through Christ. God will allow you to grieve the Holy Spirit. And having grieved the Holy Spirit, experience consequences. He will allow you to experience. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he talks about people that take the Lord's Supper illegitimately. And he says, some of you have drank judgment upon yourself and you've gotten sick and you've even died as a result of it. These are disciplines. And the writer of Hebrews says, why does God discipline? He disciplines those whom he loves. He disciplines those whom he loves. That is all driven by love. In fact, you see this here in the book of Hosea. You see the purpose of this judgment that is coming. And it is important for us as we go through the minor prophets and the difficult messages of the minor prophets to understand the motivating, driving force that is behind all of this. Chapter 2, verse 7. She shall, talking about Gomer, talking about God's people, talking about the adulterous spiritual harlots, pursue her lovers, her other gods, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me than now. Now listen, this is, you're on the edge of, of serious rebellion. 
you're, you're giving serious thought about joining everybody else in school, about joining everybody else in the fraternity or the sorority. You're giving serious thought about the affair, the, the person, the, the girl or the guy who's caught your eye at work or at the ball field. You're giving serious thought about, about a, 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 real, a, a real compromise of your morals. You're, you can feel your morals reshaping in you, the normal of what is acceptable to you reshaping. This is what you need to hear. God will let you crash. God will. God will let his people bottom out. God will let his people run from their fellowship with him so that they end up destitute and broke and longing after the slop of the pigs. So as they sit there and long after the slop of the pigs, they remember my father's house was better than this. Here I am chasing after all these men and women that want to use, abuse, and misuse, and move on from me. And I have a faithful husband at home who cherishes me, and treasures me, and loves me, and protects me, and provides me. That God will do what is necessary. Oh, feel the weight of this church. Feel the weight of this young men, young women, older men, older women. Feel the weight of this. God will do what must be done to open up your eyes to your sin if you're his child. Because he loves you. God is not a spiritual enabler. He will not sit by as a father watching his children destroy and do nothing. He will not, as a, as a husband, rest on his laurels while his wife throws herself at every abuser she can find. He will do what it takes to open up your eyes. You know, one of the markers of good parenting is that one day when you, your kids are of age and they mature and they grow up, they're able to understand and appreciate the discipline that you've brought into their lives. And they come to the, and, and I'm not talking, some of you have experienced this in abusive sense. That is not, that is not the character of God. In fact, we're going to see this even clearly, more clearly in a second. Some of you experienced this and you were just at the other end of the anger of your dad who flew off the handle and you were his escape valve. That is not the picture in the book of Hosea. But for those of you who experienced discipline from a parent who may be crying while they disciplined you, for, for those of you who have had a, a parent and who has had to look you in the eye and say, son, son, I'm embarrassed, I'm ashamed of you, I love you, I want to help you, but I cannot support this. To come back, how many of us this morning have a testimony about how God let us bottom out and then we looked up and finally, finally we were devoted to him. Finally we got it. How many of us have been used and misused by this world to end up in a gutter somewhere only to look up and say, oh, God really is better. God's way really is the better way. God's truth really is the greater truth. God's morality really is the greater morality. God really did care for me. He really wasn't trying to keep me from things. He was trying to keep me from pain. That's the heart of God. That's the heart of God. But guess what? It gets sweeter yet. It gets sweeter yet. That he will open our eyes and he will win our hearts. Okay, so now we're getting, remember, now and later. The first part, everything else we've talked about so far, that's the now. That's dealing with what's in our lives today. That's, that's God bringing us to the ends of ourselves and opening our eyes today, disciplining us today. But now we get to the later. We get, that is, we get to where, how God responds to us when we're brought to the end of ourselves. 
when we look and we see the, the pig slop and we begin to long for our father's house, when we realize we're abused and laying in the gutter and that our, our faithful husband is home and will receive us, we, we begin to think about how much better it is. And now, now we read of how he responds to us. And I want you to, first of all, I want you to think about, before we read it, how would you respond? How would you respond if you were the husband in this situation? Listen to how God responds. Verse 14, chapter 2. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness, and I will speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor. Okay, the, the significance of the valley of Achor. If, if you remember way back in the book of Joshua, they've come, the walls of Jericho have fallen down, miraculous deliverance from God, the, the might of God is shown, and then they come against this little bitty tiny nation called Ai, and they are massacred by Ai. And what they discover is there in the valley of Achor, there's a man named Achan who had stolen some of the treasures from the previous battle and kept them for himself. And so they had, in other words, this is the first instance of spiritual harlotry where their hearts begin to turn toward the gods of Canaan. And what does God say? I'm going to take that place of judgment. I'm going to take that place of unfaithfulness. I'm going to take that place of forsakenness. I am going to make it a threshold of hope. I'm going to make the place in which your judgment began a starting point, a starting line, a threshold of hope. And there she, he, she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my bell. For I will remove the names of, bell, of the bells from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow the sword and the war from the land and I will make you lie down in safety that's that Psalm 23 isn't it and I will betroth you to me forever and I will betroth you to me in righteousness they are not righteous but they will be made righteous in justice they are, they are experiencing God's justice in the harm now they will experience God's justice and wonder and steadfast love love that will not leave and in mercy I will betroth you to me in faithfulness they are not faithful but they will be faithful and you shall know the Lord. Do you hear the picture? How will God receive his runaway bride? How will God receive his bride that has thrown herself at every man and every God that she can find? Will he invite her into his house and then put her on a cot in the basement? Will he bring her in and say, yeah, you can come back into my house, but you're going to hear about what you've done every day for the rest of your life. Does he bring her in and says, yeah, you can live with me, but as long as you live with me, you're going to have to endure the verbal abuse that comes with me because my heart is filled with bitterness and anger. No, he says, I'm going to allure her. I'm going to speak tenderly to her. I'm going to romance my bride back. I'm going to woo my bride back. I'm not going to put her in a cot in the basement. I'm going to take her out to dinner. I'm going to shower her with gifts. I'm going to give her the vineyards. In other words, for God, it was never about mechanical duty, mechanical, cold-hearted obedience. It was always about the heart. I am going to win the heart of my bride. Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, it's a verse that Jesus quotes in this very same context to the Pharisees. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire the heart of my people. 
And so he says, what I'm going to do, and you shall know the Lord. You need to underline that in your Bible. Hosea chapter 4, verse 6, or chapter 4, verse 5, he says that the issue among my people is they have no knowledge of me. But then he's not talking about intellectual knowledge. What does it mean to know? This is the same word in Genesis chapter 4 when Adam knew his wife. Listen to this, listen to this. The idea is that when his wife comes back to him, as unfaithful as she's been, as, as hell-bent as she's been, as, as, as runaway as she's been, he's not going to give her a cot in the basement. He's going to bring her into the bedroom. She's going to have full access. She's going to be fully restored as his bride. They're going to consummate their marriage. He's going to recommit and betroth himself to her all over again. Even though he had been faithful. Even though he had not sinned. He's not going to hold her at arm's length. He's not going to wield her sin as a club against her head. He's going to bring her into his house. Bring her into his bread. Bring him close to his chest. And he's going to let her feel his safety again. I wonder if there's somebody here. And God has opened your eyes. And you realize that you have ended up in a place that you don't want to be doing things you don't want to do with people you don't want to be with. Experiencing the devastation of the consequences. You are reaping some things that you've sown that you do not want to reap. And you just think, if only I could go back. If only I can go back. And the message of Hosea is you can come back. You can come home. You can come home. Would you come home? Would you come home, believer? I know you've been on a run for decades. Would you come home? I know that it seems like you're too far gone. You are not. Would you come home? God will not berate you. God will speak tenderly to you. Gets better yet. We'll close with this. Not only will he open our eyes, not only will he win our hearts, but he will pay our price. He will pay our price. Andrew, this is all I could think about while you were singing the last song. This is all I could think about. Verse 21, and in that day I will answer, declares Lord, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine and the oil and they shall answer Jezreel and I will sow her for myself in the land and I will have mercy on no mercy and I will say to not my people, you are my people and he shall say for you are my God and the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Do you hear what he's saying? There's going to be a reversal that's going to take place. Yes, right now you're being bastardized. Yes, right now you're being declared illegitimate children. But I am going to make a way in which there is a reversal that is going to come about. And you who deserve no mercy will experience mercy. And you who should be abandoned as my people will be made my people. How? How will it be? How can those who are not my children be made my children? How are those who have known no mercy, no mercy? How will it happen? Well, Gomer finds herself enslaved. All of her adultery, she is probably enslaved as a prostitute in the temple of Baal. Man after man after man coming and doing these sick rituals with her. She can't just go home. She has to be paid off. She has to be bought out. Verse 2, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer 
and a lethek of barley. The picture there is he didn't have enough money to pay. The cost was so high, he didn't even have enough money to pay. And so here's Hosea, and Hosea is getting, and he's scratching up everything that he can find. He's going in all the couch cushions, and he's, he's going, and he's pawning the car title, and he's, he's getting everything that he can, and he's gathering all of it up, and he's going over to the master, and he's dumping down literally every possession that he has. And he says, I'll buy the girl. How could he? How could he? Do you see the picture? How can these... How can someone who is named not my people become named my people? How can someone named no mercy be named mercy? Because there was a son, another son, and his name was forsaken. And there he was nailed to the cross. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken this? And all of the forsakenness that his people deserved, all of the forsakenness that his runaway bride deserved, is poured out, unfiltered and unadulterated over his son. And it is hanging there on the cross. What are those mocking and sneering saying? How could he? How could he be the son of God? How could he be the son of God? For God would come down and get his son if it was his son. And then his son was raised on the third day. That is, that groom was raised up to receive his bride, church. He was raised up to receive his bride because he, the one who was named forsaken, is now named faithful and true. And he has delivered his church. And he has paid her price. And he has bought our redemption. Our name has changed. No longer am I no mercy. I am mercy. No longer am I unfaithful. I am faithful. No longer am I unrighteousness. I am righteousness. He Paid the price. He said, give me the girl. And all of us who all these years have said, how could he? How could he? How could he condemn anyone? How could he bring judgment against anyone? He brought it against his son so that now we all stand up and say, how could he? How could he pay my price? How could he love me like that? And the question that's before each of us this morning is how will you respond to a love so great as that. Let's pray to the Lord together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. We would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.